Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. This May marked the 200th anniversary of the birth of Karl Marx. For many, this was an occasion for celebration, not somber reflection on a set of ideas that, when put into action, have claimed the lives of millions. John MacDonald gave a speech on the enduring relevance of Marx. Jean-Claude Juncker played his part in the fortification of the German thinker's reputation by unveiling a Chinese-funded statue of Marx in Trier. The headline of one New York Times piece simply said, Happy birthday, Karl Marx. You were right. Why is a man whose ideas have been found not just to be wrong, but dangerously so, still so revered by so many? To find out, I spoke to Christian Nemitz of the IEA. Christian is the author of a forthcoming book on Marxist regimes and their fellow travellers. Okay, so I'm here with Christian Nemitz at the Institute of Economic Affairs uh, to talk about Karl Marx. I spoke to Christian a few days before Marx's birthday, and I started by putting to him Joseph Schumpeter's famous description of Marxist ideology as blind faith. To, to my occasion, I'm going to start by quoting Schumpeter at you, uh, Christian, uh, to get things going. Go on. At the, at the beginning of Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, his, his masterpiece, he says the following. In one important sense, Marxism is a religion. To the believer, it presents first a system of ultimate ends that embody the meaning of life and are absolute standards by which to judge events and actions. And secondly, a guide of those ends which implies a plan of salvation and the indication of the evil from which mankind, or a chosen section of mankind, is to be saved. Now, he wrote that in 1942. And I would say that in the years between 1942 and now, that's still a pretty accurate description of Marx's uh, supporters. Yes, absolutely. Although you could say in his time, it was probably more the case that uh, left-wing intellectuals would be avid Marx readers. That is not necessarily the case today. Socialism has become very fashionable again. Socialism as an abstract idea is very popular, but I, I doubt that many of them would want to follow Marx uh, to the letter. It's, it's, uh, they would refer to him, but more as a, a sort of, I don't know, a sage-like figure. Uh-huh. Like old major in in Animal Farm. So if there's been any progress, it's that, that it's that they're not as doctrinaire as they once were on the left. Yes, although I don't know how much that really matters uh, in terms of outcomes. If you look at the glorification of various socialist regimes over the years by left wing intellectuals, for the more recent examples, they became popular because they distanced themselves quite explicitly from 
old school Marxist regimes. So when when uh, Venezuela mania in the West started, which was around in the mid two uh, thousands, it started actually with a Chavez speech in two thousand and five, during which he said. We are a socialist government. We want a socialist transformation. But he also, at various, uh, repeatedly distanced himself from the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. So that was the time when when it started off. Uh, he had to do this distancing thing of saying yes, socialism, but not that kind of socialism, and and uh, and, and, and saying this will be genuinely different. And yeah, you're you're the author of a forthcoming book in which I think you basically argue that. There's this cycle of Western supporters of socialism. They find a new they have, find a new example of socialism that will work this time. Venezuela being arguably the most recent, uh, which is somehow different from all the old ones. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're if you don't sort of drink the Kool Aid, it seems it seems blindingly obvious that that they're making the same mistake over and over. So yes. why why do you think that why do you think they keep falling for it? Well, it it's. I think it's a genuine belief that this time will be different and maybe a lack of awareness that that is what socialists have always said. The, there is the, uh, the wrong perception that previous generations of socialists just hadn't thought about it in those terms, that uh, socialism could be non-authoritarian, that it does not have to have a police state, that uh, previous generations just hadn't thought about that, which of course they have. That idea that this time will be different isn't new at all. That's actually been the case uh, ever since the Soviet Union fell out of fashion. So in, in the 1930s and, and 40s, plenty of Western intellectuals were admirers of the Soviet Union. That uh, then fell out of fashion and uh, in, in the 60s, same thing happened again, this time Maoist China being the utopia of the, of the day. Even then, that was defined explicitly in opposition to Soviet socialism. So at the time, admirers of Maoist China would have said, yes, we are socialists, but our kind of socialism has nothing to do with the Soviet Union. This time will be completely different. Maoism is uh, the, the, the complete antithesis of Stalinism. And that's uh, then when Maoism fell out of fashion, other utopias filled that void. But the argument has always been, this time is different. This is a fresh start. And one of the interesting things to me, both in your pieces for CapEx and in your forthcoming book, is the, the amazing fact that there's, there's almost no communist regime too grim f- f- to attract kind of Western, Western admirers. So you find admirers of North Korea even, and you find admirers yes. of Pol Pot and, and these mm-hmm. plainly horrendous uh, regimes. I mean, I, well, I, I guess the question is when we're dealing with those kind of sympathies, it's sort of, it sort of moves away from politics and becomes a sort of psychological problem in many ways. You sort of, it's impossible to imagine being in that frame of mind. Yes, I'd even go further. It is actually the most atrocious ones that have attracted the most enthusiastic sympathizers in the West. For In the case of the Soviet Union, it pretty much ended in the 50s when the worst was over. So post-Stalin, uh, the Soviet Union was no longer nearly as horrible as it was before. The gulags uh, were never closed down, but gulag, uh, the, the inmate population fell from several million to... I don't know, a couple of thousand. It, it was um, no longer nearly as bad. But that was when uh, when Soviet socialism was falling out of fashion. It was the same with Maoism, which was at its most popular at the time when it was most murderous. And um, 
fell out of fashion once the worst was over and it moderated itself a bit. There, there seems to be something about uh, this idea of completely remaking society, which is what those, the most horrendous socialist regimes did. And the, the milder ones, let's say Poland uh, or East Germany, Hungary, which were, of course, grim dictatorships, but not uh, genocidal, they didn't quite have that that appeal of we're making a new man here. You talked about this uh, yourself, but you know you can look at polls, poll after poll, that suggests that the idea of socialism is is pretty popular, particularly among younger voters in Britain and America. I think in America, more young people have more millennials have positive connotations associated to socialism than they do capitalism. If you ask them about about those two yeah. uh, belief systems, that's true here too. Yeah, and I guess the, the question is. If you are someone like both of us who ha- have looked at the evidence of when the experiments are run in both these systems and can see that there really is no competition in terms of the outcomes, political and economic outcomes, why have we done such a bad job of fighting this battle of ideas? Why is something that's so obviously failed so popular? There is something in something about socialism i think that that appeals to human nature it makes more intuitive sense you can be a socialist without knowing much about it pretty much by default socialism is a default opinion you would um, i'm sure you've experienced this uh, let's say at university that people would ask you how did you become a free marketeer how Mm -hmm. did you discover those ideas but nobody would ask your lefty friends the same question nobody would ask them how did you become a lefty because well, you just obviously are a lefty. That's that's the default opinion. That doesn't need explaining. It's the the deviation from that that needs explaining. There is yeah, an, an intuitive appeal. Well, you mean because it's just sort of being nice, sort of the, this idea of sort of giving stuff to people and is sort of generosity superficially to it that makes it appealing. Is that is that what you mean by? It could go even further. It could be. That's not an area that I'm an expert in, but there are people who have uh, argued that from the perspective of evolutionary psychology mm-hmm. that we have evolved in small tribes and uh, our minds are tuned, therefore, to the economic life of a small tribe. What happens in a small tribe, let's say a hunter-gatherer society, is that all economic activity is uh, is purposeful. and You cooperate, but you intentionally cooperate and you design economic life. You have the tribe gathering around a campfire and deciding uh, tomorrow we, we do this, we go on a mammoth hunt, and uh, we're going to share it in, in such and such way. Everything is is deliberately coordinated by the so, community. Sort of, sort of central planning, but with 12 people rather than 120 million people. Or, yes. Yeah. But in a sense, uh, socialist ideas are an attempt to um, to impose that old-style tribal economy on a society of millions of people and an infinitely more complex economy, which is, of course, why uh, it doesn't work. That's what, what Hayek was writing about, saying that this tribal logic makes perfect sense within small communities. We would not have an internal market within the family. You wouldn't want a system where your partner cooks and you do the washing up. You wouldn't want to have a market mechanism to, to coordinate that there. Completely different rules apply. 
And uh, but we can't organize a large anonymous uh, society that's based on complex patterns of division of labor in the way in which we would organize a small group. It's just that there's a part of our mind which wants which wants to do that and which refuses to believe that it can't but, be done. But even if we have that kind of instinctive, if, if there's that sort of advantage on the left because of human nature, it's not a particular. You would have thought it's not a particularly difficult argument to make to say. Yes, that's what you naturally think, but here's why it doesn't work. Yes, well, there is uh, always the tendency among socialists to distance themselves from previous examples. So that's why uh, you won't convince anyone by banging on about how bad the Soviet Union mm. was or how bad uh, North Korea is. It's... Um, it's not that people who are sympathetic to socialism today have a rose-tinted view of those examples. Some have, but that's the minority. It's more that it really is a genuine belief that uh, they've just done it in, in the wrong way, that tells us nothing about socialism, and that next time will be different. So if you're, let's take a specific example, if you're um, the most recent one, uh, Venezuela, is the, uh, if you're Diane Abbott or John McDonnell or Jeremy Corbyn, all of whom have expressed their, or in the past expressed their support for the Chavez uh, regime. Forget about the answers they would give on TV. What do you think those people think in private about the way the th things have gone in Venezuela and the, the, the evident failure now there? Do they, do they think they, I mean, what's the, what's the, do you think it's just, well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Of the doubt. Does it, has it changed their views on socialism? Or if not, what are the kind of excuses you think they've, um, they've come up with? Well, it clearly hasn't changed uh, their views. Otherwise, they would say it. There would be no shame in saying, uh, I, I was wrong about this. It's not, most of us are not experts on the economy of a foreign country. It wouldn't be a big deal to say, okay, I was fooled by some positive headline figures. Therefore, I fell for this. Plenty of people have said this. Let's say after uh, the Irish property crash, plen plenty of people mm -hmm. have said, yes, I thought this was uh, a marvelous economic boom, but obviously it wasn't. And um, I was fooled by some positive headline figures. There's no shame in saying that. No, I, th I guess it's a, a combination of... Um, firstly, you can always come up with, with excuses. There's always some factor that that uh, you can you can blame more hardline socialists are really telling themselves that it's because of of saboteurs once again uh, the old excuse is yeah. back to to stalinism in, in 1930s is always some sinister forces trying to undermine it from outside or from, or from within and um well, we've seen the the John McDonnell speech at Davos saying, "Yeah, it's they deviated from socialism," mm -hmm. which all economies uh, are, of course, mixed economies. If you look at the Venezuelan economy or any economy, any uh, even one of former Eastern Bloc economies, and look for non-socialist elements, you will find them. That's why now a lot of uh, people who were who were praising the Chavez regime or who are generally trying to dissociate Venezuela from socialism, just look systematically for non-socialist aspects of that economy, which there are, of course, as, as any economy other than maybe Pol, Pot, uh, Pol Pot's regime, being the purest example, but any economy also has non-socialist features. There's mm -hmm. no, no pure socialism, just as there's no pure capitalism. And if you then overemphasize those aspects and, and say, oh, that's what caused it, if you, then make, you have an excuse, yeah. If you make the the points you're making, uh, the points I've made, you know, these are all. I think all these things are true about 
let's take the narrow example of British politics. If you talk about the Labour 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 front bench, their support for Venezuela, their past support for East Germany, whatever whatever it may be, you're basically told that you're a bore, you're, you're you're a bore, and that mm-hmm. um, you know. Yes, that might all be true, but that's not going to change anyone's mind, and no, no one really cares about these um, these historical examples, which seems to me to be quite a sort of glib dismissal of quite an important thing. Um, yeah. So, how do you kind of do? You have any thoughts on? And this isn't necessarily your department, but do you have any thoughts on making those points? more interesting people, making them more vivid to people. I mean, these are sort of murderous regimes that we're talking about. And yet this is seen as some dusty economics professors are interested in it, but voters aren't thing. I think showing those parallels that this isn't really new. It's not just the Corbynistas today, but that's something that, that that's a pattern that has been going on for decades, that you had Western leftists being sympathetic to a regime as long as that regime seemed to be doing well, and then suddenly retroactively distancing uh-huh. themselves from it. That's a pattern that has been going on for decades. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I presume one of the points of the book, too, is to overcome this kind of double standard in which if you're a right-wing politician or thinker or whatever, you can make any connection with a far-right organization pre you know present or historical that is i mean you are not basically you're not allowed to continue in public life right yes um uh because those regimes were horrible they killed millions of people uh and so on if you uh, the same just simply uh, isn't true i mean in fact Mm. you get to run the labor party if you if you think those things about regimes that killed tens of millions of people fighting that double standard is that done just through laying out the the history to people or how how do you achieve that by pointing out that uh, the idea that the atrocities of of socialism were just 
deviations from the ideal, that that idea is wrong. They were actually quite consistent applications of uh, of socialism. It was not a coincidence that so many socialist regimes turned authoritarian and, uh, well, all of them turned authoritarian, but some even then turned murderous. It's not that they had the misfortune of just having a group of psychopaths taking over, but that actually happened all for systematic reasons. It is, for example, the uh, most of the murders in or mo- most of the, the death toll of the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and also Maoist China was a result of the forced collectivization of agriculture. That was what caused the famines, totally disrupted the, uh, the food sector and caused massive shortages. But you can't say that that was a deviation from socialism. Those were, at the time, predominantly agrarian economies. So, of course, if you're a socialist, you would want to collectivize those sectors. You wouldn't say, yeah, we'll collectivize the few industries that there are, but we leave agriculture as it is. So those were absolutely applications of, uh, of of socialism. They were not some random deviations. And, and of course, the, the crucial point there is that the thing that enabled these disastrous policies to continue was exactly that, was that they were ideologically motivated. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you were running the Russian, the Soviet economy, and you started a process of collectivization, if you were not an ideologue, you would stop that process, right, as soon as it became obvious that yes. it wasn't working. Yes. And in, in, in other systems, generally, um, a lack of economic success is not does not necessarily cause a crisis. Let's say Ireland until the 1980s was the poorest country in Western Europe. It wasn't particularly successful economically, but that didn't cause the Irish government to become authoritarian in the sense of looking for culprits. Mm -hmm. But in a socialist system, if you have economic problems, there's always been the issue that that's not supposed to happen. So you have to find a scapegoat. Right. And that's one of the reasons why the socialist regimes always turned authoritarian, why you then get show trials and hunt witch hunts for imaginary saboteurs and uh, foreign spies, wreckers, people trying to undermine it. And that's a big difference between you can have capitalist economies that don't do well for for a while or even for, for a prolonged period without that having political repercussions mm-hmm. that's just we have we just have sometimes phases of of low growth in socialist regimes since there is the idea that uh, socialism is superior to capitalism and uh, this is an economy run by the people and all that if it doesn't work you need to find someone to blame mm-hmm. let's uh, move on slightly uh, to a slightly different point about marx which is you, you know we we've, we've spoken about regimes government set up it kind of in his name or following his ideas and and how, how badly that's um, worked out there is a sort of more mainstream view that would that would well, I mean although that's uh, obviously that's support for those is arguably way too ma- mainstream but nonetheless there's a there's a more mainstream view which is that yes communism is is a really bad way of running a country but uh, Karl Marx uh, in his description of capitalism was actually quite was that was actually spot on. Um, there's, there's a piece in the New York Times today which is titled "Happy Birthday, Karl Marx." You were right. Um, and I, there's a line in there which I'd like to just read out, which is basically the author says, "Educated liberal opinion is today more or less unanimous in its agreement that Marx's basic thesis, 
that capitalism is driven by a deeply divisive class struggle in which the ruling class minority appropriates the surplus labor of the working class majority as profit is correct. So that view is, is, the, is the sort of orthodoxy in 2018, according to the author of this piece. Um, do you think that's true as a question of analysis? And uh, I mean, about the present day, do you think that's, do you think that's correct? And, and, and do you think that view is right? I mean, do you think Karl Marx was right about capitalism? No, he wasn't. But I, I would agree with him that that is the orthodoxy today. Uh, at, le at least he, he admits that. Uh, it's, it's quite often that uh, the people who make the case like to claim that this is somehow an, an extremely provocative um, uh, point of view, which, no, it really isn't. Um, okay, well, then, and then let's deal with the actual substantive, the substantive claim about, about capitalism I mean, that, and why, that's, why you think yes, that's wrong. Um, well... Marx wrote, of course, a lot about crises in, uh, in in capitalism. That's why every time we have an economic downturn, especially during the financial crisis, but I've, I've seen this before after the, the, the crash of the dot-com bubble in, uh -huh. in 2000 or so, that uh, you get all sorts of commentators saying, oh, look, there we have an economic crisis. Marx w wrote about crises and capitalism. Surely this shows that he was actually right. Well, it doesn't. You have to show that uh, not just that there is some sort of crisis, but that it occurs for the reason that, that Marx wrote about. In fact, every school of economic thought writes about boom and bust. That's standard fare. That's, uh, that's, that's what every school of economic thought does. That's Keynesians uh, most famously, but also the, the Chicago school, the Austrian school of Hayek and, and Mises. Every school has some theory about why we have boom and bust cycles, why that happens. So if you if uh, if you claim every time that there's a downturn that this shows that Marx was right, you'd also have to claim that this shows that Keynes was right, that Friedman was right, that Hayek was right. <laughs> they can't all be right at the same time, because a lot of their theories are mutually exclusive. So this is a bit like uh, saying um, something bad has happened, some natural disaster somewhere. Nostradamus wrote about bad things happening. Therefore, this proves that Nostradamus was right. And, and so if, if, as you said, he's someone who, like every other economist, has tried to explain crashes, has tried to explain the current system, uh, you know, the market, market economy, what, why, why Marx? Like, why is Marx so... Why does he have such a following? Why is he so revered? What, what do you think about, about, about him as... Yeah, maybe that's not so much about uh, the crisis point, although that, that's part of it. If you have a general antipathy to capitalism, you will, of course, want to see every downturn in, uh, in, in the capitalist economy as somehow confirmation. I think that's, I, I interrupt, there's, that, there's, the, there's the John McDonnell quote at the time of the last recession where he said, uh, I'm a Marxist, uh, this is a crisis of capitalism, yeah, for Christ's sake, don't it. waste it. Or, it's something yes. like that. Yes, it, uh, he was uh, hoping for it. Yeah, but sometimes you get economic downturns that really are clearly caused by something that have much narrower explanations. Mm -hmm. The reason why we have uh, this prolonged crisis in, in, in Southern Europe, that really is something that you could reasonably describe as a depression. But that has is clearly a result of uh, of a monetary union that they shouldn't have entered. It was a political project. But that's that's a much narrower explanation. It's not something that's just a, a, a sweeping generalization. Right. This is somehow about capitalism. This has to do with a, a particular political project that um, they were pursuing, but didn't have to pursue. Could have been done differently. So, uh, Christian, one last question. Uh, you, I, I take it, won't be booking a 
plane ticket to go to Trier this weekend to uh, see the unveiling of a new Karl Marx statue uh, with Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, paid for by the Chinese government. No, I'm not. <laughs> Christian Nimitz, thanks a lot. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of Lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life, and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change.